God promised the Apostle Paul that he would have the opportunity and the responsibility of testifying before kings. But in order for him to give evidence for Christ before some of the most powerful men in the Roman Empire, the Apostle would first have to become their prisoner and be at their mercy. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. As a free man, Paul was a great witness to the Jews and Gentiles in the cities where he preached, and though in very different circumstances, he was no less a witness to the kings and governors of his day. Keep listening now as Dr. Boyce details the first of Paul's appearances before the leaders of the Roman Empire, who held the apostles' fate in their hands. We're turning today to the 24th chapter of Acts and the account there of the appearance of the Apostle Paul before Governor Felix, the accusation made against him, his defense, and the response of this Roman governor to Paul's presentation of the gospel. It's interesting that Paul has finally come to the position where he is now to testify before the distinguished rulers of this world. If you think back to his conversion on the road to Damascus and the revelation that was given to him at that time, you'll recall that Jesus said he was going to send him to be an ambassador to the Gentiles to speak of Jesus himself before kings and to bear a witness to his own people. There were three parts to that. Paul had already fulfilled two of them. He had carried the gospel to the Gentiles. He had testified before the Jews, and now he was to speak before kings. Here in this chapter, he speaks before Governor Felix. In the next chapter, we find him bearing a witness before the successor of Felix, Governor Festus, and then finally, further on, we find him before King Agrippa, in every case telling what Jesus had done for him and would do for these other distinguished men and women as well. When he was free, he was a great witness for Jesus. But when he was imprisoned, he was no less a witness, and God blessed it no less, beginning with this man, Felix. Who was Felix? Well, Felix was a governor. He had status, but he wasn't much. He had been a slave, became a freedman under Claudius. He pandered to the depravity of the emperor and rose up in the court until finally he was awarded the governorship of Judah. He was corrupt in his administration. He was hated by the Jews. His time there was filled with graft. The wife he married was a teenager whom he stole from another king. And finally, the corruption of his rule became so great that Nero, even Nero, who was no model of morality, recalled him. And no doubt he would have been executed if his brother, who was in Rome at the time, had not pleaded on his behalf. This was the man, the man before whom Paul now appears to give an account. Now, the story 
is an interesting one. Five days passed, and during that time, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem got their case together and then responded to the invitation to come down to Caesarea and press their charges against Paul. They brought a lawyer with them. His name is given, Tertullus. It's a Roman name, and that's all we know about him. People who know the Greek language thoroughly, people like F.F. F. Bruce, say they detect in this little speech that he gives here, verses 5 and following, certain Latinisms. I confess that kind of subtle detection is beyond me. If I can read it in Greek and understand it, I'm satisfied without detecting that the Greek is a translation of something that was said in Latin. But at any rate, F.F. F. Bruce thinks that that's the case. We just don't know. He was certainly a professional orator, which is what the lawyers of the day tended to be. And he came down with the Sanhedrin at their request, their official representative to plead the case against Paul, and indeed he was very eloquent. Luke probably in these accounts gives what was said in a very condensed form, but if his condensation of Tertullus's speech reflects in any way the proportion of what this man actually said on that occasion, half of his address was given over to the flattery of the governor. He said, and we can read it here. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But of course, that was sheer hypocrisy. The Sanhedrin didn't think that at all. They hated this man, and I suppose Corrupt as he must have been, he was at least shrewd enough to be a governor, and he must have heard this with the tongue in his cheek. What was it that these Jewish leaders were after, that they would come down here all the way from Caesarea and flatter him, whom they hated, in this fashion? And then it became very clear. There was this man, Paul, and they wanted to do away with him. They had several charges against him. And this lawyer develops them. The first is that he was a troublemaker. An interesting word that's used here. A literal translation would be pest, P-E-S-T, but it has the original sense of that word even in English, pestilence. What they really meant was this guy, Paul, is a plague of mammoth proportions. Everywhere he goes, he spreads contagion. What Tertullus was trying to do in this accusation was suggest that this was the kind of person whom, if left at large, would bring a large measure of turmoil, contention, and perhaps eventually even insurrection in the empire. It was the same charge that was originally brought against the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew when they brought that charge that Pilate, who heard the case, would not be at all interested in matters that concerned them, that is, religious matters, but he certainly would be concerned if Jesus was about to stir up an insurrection. So this is the first charge this man Tertullus brought. The second charge is that he was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now, each of those words is loaded, as I'm sure you're aware. 
He was a follower of Jesus, but even at this early date, the Jews didn't want to use the name. They didn't even refer to him being a follower of the Nazarene. It was just the Nazarene sect. Moreover, they called it a sect. That word has overtones of a heresy. Sometimes we use the word sect, and we just mean, well, it's a deviant set of opinions, but here it means uh, heresy. And moreover, he's a ringleader. They could have said a noble leader, but they didn't say that, and the word had the same overtones it has for us. He was one that was at the head of this troublesome heresy that for some unknown reason had grown up within Judaism. And then they had a third charge, and the third charge is that he was trying to desecrate the temple. Now they distorted the story at that point. Tertullus, either mistakenly or intentionally, said, we seized him. He really is saying we arrested him. But of course that wasn't true. A mob fell upon him and they were trying to kill him. And the people that actually arrested Paul were the Romans and they did it in order to save his life, to establish justice. But he puts things into a good light for himself and the Sanhedrin. And no doubt as he later on does, cast aspersions against the man who had arrested him. So that was the charge. Here is this man, Paul, a troublemaker, and we don't need any of those. We've had enough already. A ringleader of this despised heresy of the Nazarenes and a man who tried to desecrate our temple. Perhaps he thought he could score a point with that last accusation because Roman law recognized the sacred nature of the Jewish temple and even prescribed the death penalty for those who would violate it. So he made his accusation. He sat down. Felix must have nodded to Paul, and Paul now, according to the procedures of Roman law, had a chance to stand and argue his case. He begins in a very polite way with an address to the governor, but it is restrained, especially when we contrast it with what this paid orator Tertullus said. Tertullus flattered the governor. Paul will do no such thing, but he does point out that he knew that he had been a judge over the nation for a number of years, long enough to know something about the kind of nation over which he was presiding. And because he was a judge, you see, all these words are chosen very carefully. Because he was a judge, undoubtedly had ruled in court over cases much like this. So he was well aware, Paul pointed out, of the kind of charges that were being brought and the substance of them, actually the fact that they were very insubstantial. And then he began to answer the charges that Tertullus had made. He does it in order. If you read it carefully, you can understand how he does. The first charge had been that Paul was a troublemaker, and his response to that charge is that it is not so. Moreover, he said, I can prove my assertion, and they are unable to prove theirs. How can I prove it? I can prove it in this way. First, he said, it has only been 12 days since I first arrived in Jerusalem. Now, Felix was well aware that he had already been five days in Caesarea, and he had been one day in prison in Jerusalem. So there are six of the 12 days at the most 
Paul had six days, that is less than a week, to stir up the kind of trouble that they're accusing him of doing. It might well be the case if they had a rebuttal that these men could have replied, we're not concerned about the trouble he was stirring up in Jerusalem, we're concerned about the trouble he's been creating all around the world, but you see, they weren't in a position to testify to what was happening in other places. This wasn't a spot where gossip could be spread where second-hand testimony could be taken. This was a court of law. They had to testify to what they knew. And if Paul had only been six days in their capital, quite obviously that was not enough time to stir up the kind of insurrection they were implying he had come to the country to cause. Then he said, in second place. I'm obviously no troublemaker because during those six days when I was there in Jerusalem and they found me, they found me not even debating with the crowds. I wasn't even lecturing, said Paul. I've done that in other places. That's my mission. But in Jerusalem, I wasn't even entering into dispute with anybody, and certainly there were no crowds around me. As a matter of fact, as the story goes on to show, I was simply there in the temple trying to worship the very God they profess to worship because I also am a Jew. So he said, you can check it out. I obviously am not a troublemaker. Then he deals with the second accusation, and that had to do with him being a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Now, he does say, in response to this accusation, that although he would phrase it differently, it's nevertheless true. Paul doesn't say, I'm a ringleader. He doesn't even change it to say, I am one of the distinguished leaders of the movement. And he doesn't refer to it as the sect of the Nazarenes. He calls it rather that way. And he says, I am a follower of that way. But with all those qualifications, he nevertheless is agreeing to the substance of the accusation. The question, you see, was whether that was a sufficient accusation for a judgment. Was it not the case that he could practice his religion according to his own understanding under Roman law? He was a follower of the way. It was a way within Judaism. Was Judaism not protected by the Roman government? If the governor was to move against him for his practice, he would have to, would he not, move against these very leaders of the Sanhedrin who had come down to press the case against him. You see, that's a very wise, very clever response to the accusation that has been made. He says, moreover, that what I believe is up to a certain point exactly what they believe, or at least what they ought to believe. Because he said, this matter of following Jesus, the Nazarene, this matter of the way, is not, you must understand, some deviant form of Judaism, but Judaism itself, I believe as they profess to believe in all the law and all the prophets. As a matter of fact, that's the sort of thing that Christians can well say today. When you're witnessing to a Jewish person, it's possible to claim, especially if you're witnessing to a Jewish person that hardly practices his or her Judaism, that you're more Jewish than they are. Because unlike so many of the synagogues today and the rabbis who 
in many cases are as liberal within Judaism as Protestant professors are within Christianity. We, by contrast, really do believe it. We believe everything that's written there in the Old Testament and the New, and moreover, we believe that those Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, who is called the Christ. Moreover, said Paul, I also believe in the resurrection. That's the issue that he had raised when the Roman commander in Jerusalem had brought him before the Sanhedrin the first time. He raised it because the bulk of the Sanhedrin also believed in it, though the Sadducees did not. I believe in the resurrection, he said. And then if he had opportunity, which he didn't on the earlier occasion, but which he certainly did here at least later in his conversations, his private conversations with the governor, he testified that he believed in the resurrection not only as a matter of doctrine, but as a matter of personal experience because the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, had appeared to him to call him to the task he was given. And then there was the third charge, and the third charge was that he had tried to desecrate the temple. In the first case, Paul pleaded innocent. He was no troublemaker. In the second case, he admitted the accusation, but with rephrasing of what it was all about. In this case, he emphatically denies the accusation. He said he had come to desecrate the temple. Paul says, in effect, that is the last thing on earth that I would ever want to do. He said, I came to Jerusalem not to desecrate the temple, but, and it was clearly true, on an errand of mercy. I had been out in all these Gentile areas, among all these Gentile cities, establishing these churches, and from these churches I've received an offering, and I have brought that offering up to Jerusalem for my people because it's a bad time in Jerusalem, as you yourself know. In a period of famine, people are hungry, and so I came on an errand of mercy to bring this money. Moreover, he said, when they found me in the temple, not only was I not causing trouble, I was there in full accordance with all of the laws of their religion. I was ceremonially clean. And you can verify that. People in Jerusalem know that. They'll testify to it. I had gone through all the rites of this purification. And when they fell upon me, it was not I who created the disturbance, but they themselves. Now, that's his defense. He says... One other thing, he says, this trouble that has erupted and has brought me to this point was caused, as I said, not by me, but by certain Jews that came from Asia. That, of course, is true. That's exactly what Luke tells us earlier. They recognized him. They knew his teaching. They were upset at what he was doing, and so they fell upon him with a false accusation that he had brought Trophimus from Ephesus into the Jewish portion of the city, that is, the temple area, that is, defiling the temple, it was not true, but it was something that had been stirred up by these Jews from Asia. And what Paul is really saying, you see, is that if this is something that is bad, then it is those Jews from Asia who have to come here and testify to it. Because you see, it's a court of law. The Sanhedrin themselves were not there when this happened in the temple. They got into the matter later. If anybody is to bear a witness here, it must be the Jews from Asia. Or, 
If for some reason the Jews from Asia are unable to come and it's the Sanhedrin that wants to press the charges, then the Sanhedrin have to testify not to what the Jews from Asia said they saw, but what the Sanhedrin itself saw and can bear witness of. And Paul says, the only thing I know that they can possibly testify to on the basis of their own experience is that when I was brought before them by the commander of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, I did cry out. In the midst of the council, I stand here for my faith and the hope of the resurrection. And what did Felix do? Well, Felix did what many governors in similar situations have tried to do, caught between what they knew to be right. He knew that Paul was innocent and the pressure of the people that were calling for his condemnation. He said, well... I just can't make a decision now. I'll postpone the judgment and I'll do it until Governor Lysias is able to come down here and tell me what happened. Now that in itself isn't so bad. Certainly he had the right as the governor to hear what this commander from the Jerusalem garrison might say. There was a man he could trust, a man who had no vested interest in the outcome, a man who witnessed the facts. But the difficulty, as Luke tells us the story, is not that Felix, on perfectly legitimate grounds, postponed making a judgment until he could, at the earliest possible moment, render judgment, but rather that this was a characteristic of this man, that he postponed doing what he knew he needed to do. And the tragedy of his life was not that he postponed making a judgment upon Paul so far as the accusations of the Sanhedrin were concerned, but that he postponed the far more serious matter of making a decision where the claims of Jesus Christ were concerned. That's why Luke ends the story as he does. Felix, we're told, kept Paul and heard him on more than one occasion. He was interested in what he had to say, and as Paul appeared before him on these various occasions, Paul, we're told, testified to him about Jesus, certainly, but what Luke says is that he testified about righteousness and self-control and about the judgment to come. What we're told is that Felix, as he heard these things, trembled. It is interesting when we think about Felix, that he knew so much. Luke says he was well acquainted with the way. That is, he already knew something about Christianity. So he had that much going for him. In the second position, he knew that Paul was innocent because the accusation simply had not been able to stand up. And thirdly, and most important of all, he knew he was a sinner. Because when Paul spoke about righteousness and self-control and the judgment, he knew that he stood in danger of that judgment because of the kind of man he was. And yet in spite of all those things that were going for him, his knowledge of Christianity, his awareness of the innocence of Paul, and the fact that therefore Paul was testifying honestly about Jesus Christ, and in spite of the fact that he knew he was a sinner, he postponed making a decision. He said, I'll call for you when I find it convenient. And so with those words, he passes from the pages 
of the book of Acts and from history and from life. Now, this is a story, but it's a story that has great bearing upon where many people find themselves today. Many people today are in exactly the position in which this Roman governor found himself there in the first Christian century. They know something about Christianity. I don't know how they've learned it. Some of them have learned it in their family, in their childhood. They had godly parents who taught them about Jesus. Some have learned it from a friend. They know someone who is a Christian and who is able to articulate these things and explain them well. Some have read books. Some have heard it on the radio. Some have heard it on television. We live in an age of mass communication. Literally millions upon millions of people are in this position. They have heard it. They, they know something about Christianity. Moreover, they have no real reason to doubt the character of those who have testified to them about Christ. Now, often there are people in prominent positions, representatives of Christianity whose character is doubtful. And sometimes they use that as an excuse, but generally it's not true. They know people, good character, strong faith and belief. They even say to them things like this, oh, I'm so glad that you have a strong faith. That is just wonderful and I'm happy for you. They know people like that. And maybe also, like Felix, they know that they're sinners and that they stand in danger of the judgment. They are troubled in their soul. They are bothered. They say, what will become of me? I am an ungodly man. I am a sinful woman. Whatever will happen to me if I stand before God in the final judgment? And yet, although the gospel is known and the way of salvation is presented, they say to those who testify, not now, not now, a little later perhaps, I'll think about it later, I'll search out a more convenient time, and then I'll call for you, and then I'll make my decision. And so they perish, and they pass from history into outer darkness. Now, if you're one of those people, I want to ask the question. You say to yourself, I'll put it off until a little later. How much later? And what's going to happen in the meantime? You say, well... A little later, I feel too young now. I, I want to go on and live my life a little bit before I consider these things. What are you going to be doing in the interim? You're going to be sinning, of course. You can't stop from sinning. Is your sin an accumulation of it day by day, week by week, year by year, going to make you more open to the gospel? It will be many times harder in your heart a year from now and many Times more than that, hard in your heart, a year after that, and a year after that, you're not going to become more open to the gospel by delaying. You see, that's why the Bible says so clearly that now is the accepted time. There is never, 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 ever a better time to turn from sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ in the present moment. Harry Ironside in his study of Acts at this point, tells of something that happened to him when he was very young. He was 12 years old. He went to hear D.L. Moody in Chicago in a great big old theater there that held about 10,000 people, a building which has since been torn down. And 
because the theater was jammed with people and he was just a boy, he managed to climb up on a rafter way up above where Moody was speaking. And from there, he looked down on this vast, vast host of people. And there was a point in Moody's address where he turned to the people and said, I want everybody here who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, everybody here who is a Christian, to stand. And he had them stand, and Ironside, looking down from the rafters, saw that it was five or six or seven thousand out of that great host of ten. And then Moody went on, and he said something like this, Now I want everybody from this large number who are Christians, who became a Christian before the age of 15 to be seated. And Ironside said as he looked down, he saw that about half of those who had stood resumed their seats. About 3,000 now were standing. He said, I want everybody from this number who became a Christian before the age of 20 to sit down. And about half again sat down. Now there were only 1,500. He raised it by tens, 30, 40, 50. By the time he got to 50, there were only 20 people standing on their feet in that vast auditorium. And the point was made. You see, the Bible says, remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Never easier to believe on Jesus Christ than when you're young. And if you're old, if you say the years have gone by, it's hard for me. I don't know how I can change my life now. That may be true, but it will not be easier tomorrow. Do not say, as Felix did, when I find it more convenient, I'll believe, because you will never find it more convenient than right now. Felix was a judge, but he died. And he appeared before that one who does not postpone his judgments and who accepts no bribes. And Felix, so far as we know from the testimony of Scripture, is in hell tonight. Come to Jesus while there's time. Now is the time. Let us pray. Our Father, these are solemn words. Solemn not only because they describe the fate of Felix, but solemn because they will de determine the fate of others even now. Our Father, let it not be the case that anyone hearing these words might repeat the error of this corrupt and wicked man and so perish, but rather recognizing their sin and understanding the gospel might have grace to turn from it and find salvation where alone it may be found in Jesus, the Savior. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals.
The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts, and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.